Yesterday we had our annual men's golf tournament. The winning score was 11 under. Wayne Labotte, Kirk Borderlon, are you guys in here? Raise your hands if you're here. I know you're up in the choir. Anyways, they won the golf tournament with an 11 under score. Yeah? That gets them a $50 gift card to Dick's Sporting Goods. Because I'm in charge of the golf tournament, I also like to award a prize to the last place team. This year, the last place team, as usual, was my team. So, <laughs> we get a $15 gift card to Chick-fil-A. So, really, we all win in this scenario. So, we had a great time yesterday. I didn't think we'd be able to get it in because of the rain, but we had a great time. And one of these days, I will not bring home the last place prize. If you have your Bibles with me this morning, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, continuing on our our journey of third day living. Peter 3, verse 13 is where we're going to be. Just to refresh your memories, remember Peter is writing to a group of Gentile Christians who are experiencing persecution for doing good. They have been removed from their homeland to a different area, which is why in verse 1 of chapter 1 we find the phrase resident alien. Your translation might say exile or something along those lines, but the idea behind this is that these were believers in Jesus Christ removed from their homeland, residing in a place that is not their own. We can identify with that because there are many of us in this room that would consider New Orleans our home, but not perhaps our permanent residency. Maybe you're here for graduate school. Maybe you're here on a temporary job. So while you reside in New Orleans, really, it is not your home. On a much larger scale, all of us in this room, as the body of Christ, are resident aliens of a place called planet Earth. Meaning, this is not our home. Our home is with God the Father in heaven. So this morning, as Peter writes to resident aliens... Keep in mind, he is writing to you and to me. We're going to be in verse 13 of chapter 3. Read along with me. It'll be on the screen as well. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing what is good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter is identifying with a group of people that are being persecuted for doing good. He asks them a rhetorical question in the very first verse. Who will persecute you if you're doing good? Peter knew the answer to that question, okay? These people were being persecuted because they were followers of Christ. They were doing nothing wrong. Nevertheless, they were being persecuted. The text says they were persecuted for doing 
good. In our world today, we know the difference between right and wrong. Now, we might want to argue that that definition of what is right and wrong is shrinking, but nevertheless, we have an idea of what is right and what is wrong. The New England Patriots, no matter how you feel about Deflategate, whether you think it was gamesmanship or whether you think they cheated, we can all agree that there was something outside of the rules that they did wrong. So if we know the difference between good and bad, then we can know the difference between right and wrong. And Peter says here in this passage, to do good. That's what he tells them. He says, you're being persecuted for doing good. Some of your English translations might say eager to do good. In the English Standard Version, the word that I have there is zealous to do good. That is the idea of a firm commitment to doing what is right and what is good. These believers were not doing this by accident or haphazardly. They were zealously doing good, and they were still being persecuted. All of us in this room, each and every week, there are many of us here that go to the juvenile detention center, go to the Oz, go to Gentilly Lowe's, go to Bunny Friend Playground, go to Bourbon Street. We are doing good zealously through our Care Effect ministry. And some of us in this room, as we go, we have been persecuted for the ministries that we are doing, probably on a much smaller scale than what Peter is talking about here. But all of us deal with persecution in some way. And Peter reminds them here that you are to do good. There was a book written in 2008. Some of you might have read it. The name of the book is called The Blue Zones. It was written by a man named Dan Buettner. It was a New York Times best-selling book. And what it did is it identified areas around the world where people tended to live longer lives than in America. Okay, in fact, these people lived longer lives at a rate, they lived to 100 at a rate 10 times greater than the age that we live to here in America. He went to these areas, he was able to develop nine principles that he believed if Americans were to adopt these principles, they would have the chance to live a greater life. No guarantee that you would live to 100, but a chance to live a longer life. I'm going to give you a few of these this morning, okay? The first one was a plant-based diet. All of us in this room can scratch that one off the list, right? We don't live in the place to adhere to a plant-based diet. A few weeks ago, I felt like I needed to eat more vegetables. I went to the store, I bought some kale some blueberries and I got chocolate soy milk and I put it in the blender and most disgusting thing I've ever had in my life <laughs> horrible two nights in a row I drank this I did feel good about myself but I I decided that God would just have to help me to live longer without a plant-based diet okay I'm not going to do it Guy Williams in the first service reminded me that red beans and rice does count beans I guess count as a plant so I guess us in New Orleans are safe a plant-based diet was one of them. Another one that he identified was that you move naturally. That is the idea that not necessarily that you're going to the gym to work out or getting on the treadmill, but that in the course of your everyday life, you're just, you're walking. Maybe you walk to work. Maybe you count your steps with a little pedometer. You know, their studies are saying now that it is really, really bad to sit. And companies and organizations now are actually designing desks to be about chest high so their employees can stand throughout the day instead of sitting. So move naturally. That's another thing that he mentioned. 
And then he mentioned some more obvious ones, like having a purpose in life. One of the groups that he discussed was a group from a little small village in Greece called Ikaria. And these people were living, I mean, 95, 100, 102. One, one lady he interviewed was like 103 years old. And they're living longer lives because they live off the land. And every morning, even if you're retired, if you're responsible for finding your food for the day, you have a purpose. And then the last thing he mentioned in the book is that commitment to a faith-based organization. These are just four of the nine. There's a few more that I neglected to mention. But I found the purpose and the faith-based organization to be two for sure that those of us in this room can identify with. Every one of you in this room, even on a small scale, you're all committed to this faith-based organization known as First Baptist New Orleans. And all of us in this room have a very distinct purpose. What is that purpose? You do good through the gospel of Jesus Christ in your everyday life. It's very simple. That's what you do. You do good. And Peter is teaching these people, in spite of persecution, you still have to do good. And as we move along in the text, we get to the most famous verse, most likely, in 1 Peter, and that is verse 15 of chapter 3. When Peter tells them to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. The Greek word that he actually used there for defense is apologia, which is the idea, the English word apology, that you be ready to give an answer to anyone when you are being attacked for your faith. You see, it's important this morning, not only that we do good, but that we understand what we believe and why we believe it. Peter, again, writing to a group that's experiencing much worse persecution than me and you in America experience. But we still have a call from God to know the why and the what of our faith. I often have people tell me, just in the course of conversations, that God hasn't given them the gift of teaching. And I have to stop for a second. I have to collect my thoughts. And then I, I identify with that and I say, you know what, you're right. Maybe God hasn't given you the gift of teaching in a formal setting, such as a small group class or on a Wednesday night Bible study or up here on the stage, but every single one of us has an obligation to be able to communicate the truths of Scripture to those people that we do life with. And if you're doing that, I hate to break it to you, you're a teacher. Imagine if Peter and John and James, Matthew, imagine if all 12 of the disciples just said, I'm not a teacher. You do realize that none of them would probably say that they identified as teachers, right? But as they were doing life with people, walking side by side with them, teaching them about Jesus, they were teachers. Take them out of the gospel story, and we don't have any more followers of Christ outside of the first century. All teaching is sharing people about Jesus. Now, it's difficult because we are living in a world today that is increasingly secular. I'm sure you saw this week, it's been big news, the New York Times, 
The Washington Post, CNN has released articles regarding the latest Pew Center research study. Did you see that this week? Where once again, Christianity has declined from 78.6% to 70.4% from the years of 2007 to 2014. So an eight-year stretch or a seven-year stretch. I can't really do my math right. Christianity has declined, right? People are up in arms about it, freaking out. By the way, you do know one of the core competencies of our church is that we're not doomsdayers, right? That is, we don't buy into this negative idea that Christianity is fading and has no hope. Here's what the study is actually saying, though. I've, I've read a number of articles on this because it came out just Tuesday. A number of Christian researchers have responded and given a more accurate depiction of what the study is actually showing. Christianity is not so much dying as it is becoming more refined. What do I mean by that? 30, 40 years ago, when people would get these surveys and they would have to check out what their religious affiliation is, the majority of people, whether they went to church or not, would check Christianity. It was the cultural thing to do. As we are moving farther and farther away from that generation of thinking, what we now have is people that are on the fringe Maybe they're cultural Christians, they grew up in the church, but they really haven't identified it as their own. They no longer feel that obligation on these surveys to check Christianity. So what we're finding is, what's actually happening is, Christianity is losing some of its fringe population, and the numbers that we're seeing are actually more raw data of those that are actually following Christ. Now it is shrinking, but it's really more refined. It's important for all of us in this room to understand that. Because we live in a more secular world than we once did, we have to be able to communicate the truths of Scripture to a world that is largely unaware of Christian terminology. Think think with me for a second. You walk to somebody up on the street, and you say, you don't know them, and you say, share with me your testimony. Like in a grand jury trial, People, unless you grew up in a church, don't know what testimony means. So we have to be able to remove church jargon, heavily theological terms, not in any way to cheapen what Scripture is saying, but to be able to identify with an audience that is increasingly removed from a church environment. That is, in fact, what Christian apologetics is. We have a whole branch of Christian theology known as apologetics, which attempts to share faith with those that don't have the same background as us and also be able to defend our faith when attacks come our way. Christian apologetics is important. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 is like the theme verse for Christian apologetics. Always being ready to have an answer and to defend your faith among persecution and when people ask. Let me tell you this morning, though, People don't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of what you know about Jesus, but because of how you show who Jesus is in your life. Demonstrating your faith is more important than showing what you know about it. That's why every Wednesday night we go out into this city to show the love of Christ, not to share the knowledge that we know about it, but to show it. Having knowledge about Christ is important. 
Being able to communicate the truths of Scripture, absolutely. You have to have an accurate understanding of that. But people want to see Christ in you by the way that you live your life. So how do we go about doing that? Well, we do life with people. We interact with those in our workplace, in our neighborhood, our relatives that don't come to church. And we just share Jesus with them. It's this concept known as relationship evangelism. You share Jesus with people as you go about doing life with them. Even though Peter is telling these people, be ready to defend your faith, he's also saying you need to get out there so that you can share your faith. Not only does he tell us to do good, to know the why and the what, but he tells us to be nice. Now, originally I had as my third point, don't be a jerk, but I thought that might not be a good idea, so I tried to keep it positive. Here's the thing about 1 Peter 3.15. We always memorize, always be ready to give a hoe for the reason that is in you, and then we stop. That's how I learned it, but there's a little phrase at the end of verse 15 that is monumentally important, and it is this, yet with gentleness and respect. I am increasingly concerned about what I see on social media from followers of Christ. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, I'm sure I'm missing like five more that have been invented this past week or something. What you say on your social media matters. The words you say behind the keyboard don't somehow exempt you from hateful or ignorant remarks. Our Christian conduct matters in every walk of life. That is, at work, at home, on the computer, and the dagger in the chest for me is in the car. I've shared with you before my struggles behind the wheel, so you know. Our Christian conduct matters in every facet of our life. And Peter here tells these believers, when you're defending your faith, when people are attacking you, you are to respond with gentleness and respect. Now, we all know that we live in this current culture where we are very dismissive of the opposite view. Right? You watch CNN, Fox News, whatever the network is, whatever newspaper you adhere to. If it doesn't align up with the view that they respond to, not only do they attack the view, who else do they attack? The person behind the view. We're very intolerant as a culture. We are only tolerant to the views that we adhere to. Okay? It's just a reality. We're not very tolerant anymore. We don't have time or we don't want to ask God for patience to be able to have civil dialogue and debate with people. We just want our view to be heard and for everybody to believe our view. But this is not what Peter is saying here. He's saying when you disagree with somebody or when you're being attacked for what you believe, you don't dismiss them. You treat them with gentleness and respect. When I was in college, there was a man that came every spring... And he came to campus, and he was a sidewalk preacher. And he, he goes to colleges all along the East Coast. His name is Micah Armstrong. 
You can actually look him up. He's got his own website. He's even got his own Wikipedia page, so he has to be legitimate. And he stands in popular places like the Student Center, places, like, you know, places where a lot of student traffic is going to be happening. And he preaches a message of condemnation to college students about the way they're living their life. He, he says, claims that he's coming in the name of Christ, but he preaches a message of condemnation. He believes that he himself is no longer sinning since he follows Christ. We all know that's not biblical. We all still struggle with sin. So, uh, you know, me as a Christian in college and my friends, we all knew when he was coming and, you know, putting our nice big Christian hats on. We wanted to go and find a way to defeat him, right? Put him in his place. I never, never actually had the courage to do that, but I did like to go and watch him and observe him from a distance as he would preach to students, at students, screaming at them, judging them, condemning them for their lifestyle. You know what I found in the four years that he came while I was in college is that the people a lot of times that behaved the worst were the followers of Christ. It was oftentimes the secular people that were more civil towards him than those that were followers of Christ. Let it not be so, brothers and sisters, this morning, that when we interact with people that don't agree with us, that we lose this most important phrase with gentleness and respect. And lastly this morning, what Peter wants his audience to understand as they're experiencing persecution is that they need to be able to identify with Christ in their suffering. Verse 18 in my opinion, is the best verse out of this entire little passage that we've studied this morning because it's so theologically rich. Let's just break it down for a second. First, he says, Christ suffered once for sins. Some of your translations might say once for all. Mine just says once. This is the idea that what Christ did covers everything for all time, and he only had to do it once. Our sin the sins of people's past, the sins in the future are covered because of what Christ did on the cross. Then there's this little phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous, trying to get his audience to understand that just like they're being persecuted for doing good in their context, don't forget who was also persecuted to the point of death for doing good, drawing in that parallel to his audience there, and then here it is. We talk about salvation all the time in church, right? And the benefits of salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And those are great, great components of salvation. But here in this little phrase, I believe Peter gives us the best summation of what salvation is. That he might bring us to God. That's it. Eternal life, yes. Forgiveness of sins, yes. Most importantly, you get God. That is salvation. That Jesus picks you up and he ushers you in to the presence of God. That's salvation. And Peter paints it so perfectly here. So how do you identify with Christ in your suffering? Peter gives us two ways to do that in this verse right here. 
Number one, you remember what Christ went through. Not to belittle the suffering or the persecution that you're enduring, but to remember that as you experience suffering, maybe it's a sickness in your family, maybe it is persecution, as you experience suffering, Jesus experienced it too. And secondly, because of what Jesus did, he brings you to God, the only one who can truly give you the peace and the joy to endure your suffering. As I've gotten older, I'm trying to make myself more aware of the persecution of Christians around the world. There's a great website, and I've mentioned it before, that you can go to. It's called The Voice of the Martyrs, and it gives you stories and examples of Christian people and pastors that are experiencing persecution all around the world. And so since we were studying this this week, I went to it, and I found this story, and I wanted to put a picture with the story because that really makes it hit home. This is a man who's a pastor in Pakistan, and he is sharing Christ with his Muslim neighbors. He recently shared Christ with a man and his family. The man accepted Christ, became a follower of Jesus. And the local mosque that he once attended, he quit attending and joined this man's church. Well, the mosque didn't like that, and so he, the mosque and some of the people there began to put death threats on this man and his family. And so they had to remove themselves from where they lived in Pakistan to a new location, and they're fine. Once they got out of town and left, the rest of their family was now upset at the pastor for sharing Jesus with them. And so this Pakistani pastor and his family and his children began to receive death threats from this man's family. On Easter Sunday, just this past in April, over 200 people showed up to this man's church. 70 of them were children. The very next week, because of the death threats and persecution that they were experiencing, only 10 people showed up at the church. That'll kill a church really quickly. That's not the end of the story. The Voice of the Martyrs was able to interview this man and ask him how he felt about the persecution that he was experiencing. And here's what he said. He said, I'm just thankful that I can continue to be used for God's kingdom. No complaining. No, I wish this wouldn't happen to me. All he said was, I am thankful that God continues to use me in his kingdom. That is how you identify with Christ in your suffering. You remember that you get to be a part of his kingdom work, not only in New Orleans, but around the world. Will you bow your head with me this morning? God, many of us in this room don't, don't experience persecution, maybe to the level that people around the world do, but God, we all experience suffering and persecution in some form. God, help us to have the attitude of this Pakistani pastor that when we suffer, we can just be thankful that we get to be a part of the work that you are doing throughout the world. God, teach us more about you. Teach us more about how to be better neighbors 
to those that we interact with. Help us to do good. Forgive us for our sin. Help us to repent and turn away. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.